0: And welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. It's a big show. Baltimore Orioles catcher Adley Rutschman joins us to talk about the challenges of catching Felix Bautista, Yanir Kano, and much more. And MLB.com's Jonathan Mayo hops on to talk about his new book about the origin stories of some of baseball's unexpected stars. And we'll hear from our VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales, about the MLB trade deadline. Let's get to it. And we're joined by Orioles catcher Adley Rutschman. Adley having a second street great season behind the plate. At the time that we're talking to him, the Orioles are rolling. They just beat the Phillies. They're leading the AL East, a dramatic win last night. Adley, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So one of the things that we do with our guests, regardless of what position they play, regardless of how much they've played, we always ask them to start by telling us their earliest defensive memory in terms of something that they did particularly well and what it was like. What would yours be? Ooh,
1: earliest defensive memory. Honestly, I'd say it was like like when you I was younger or in, in the big leagues. Like when you were a kid? Oh, pitching. I was really good at pitching. I threw I threw really hard. I guess a young age and so I just remember just throwing fastballs and doing pretty well.
0: So Matt Chapman told us that his earliest defensive memory was as a pitcher and that it required him making three great defensive plays in an inning. Did you have any particularly good defensive plays on the mound as a kid? No
1: but I'd say like rundowns. We do like this rundown drill a lot and kids didn't know how to do rundowns like when you first started playing and so you could just stay in a rundown for like minutes on end I always remember doing that drill and, and being pretty good at it doesn't really answer your question but that's the first thing that comes to my mind
0: it does were you the tagger outer or were you just the, the guy that made sure that everything was you were able to make the play
1: I was like I would just try and like track guys down with the ball you know okay. like try and close distance whereas like other guys they just kind of like catch the ball like moving backwards and then they try and like run and tag the guy one of those things they don't know at a young age
0: Right, but you were you were skilled at it early on. Do you remember putting on the catcher's gear for the maybe an early point at which you did that?
1: Yeah, I mean I remember when you're younger you'd catch like one inning or two innings a game because everyone would play everywhere. So you just kinda like rotate the gear, you'd take it off and the next day I'd put it on for the next inning. But got some funny pictures of, of me catching as a kid.
0: Did you ever think back then that you would be doing it
2: now?
1: Oh gosh, I don't know. I just wanted to, I just wanted to play. You know, I just wanted to try and make it to the big leagues. And I didn't know where, you know, where it was going to be, but I just wanted to get there.
0: Cool. Let's fast forward to this year and actually the, the last two years. And there are all these different ways that we can measure your effectiveness as a catcher. We have pitch framing metrics. We have metrics to measure how effectively you block pitches, how effectively you do with stolen bases and things of that sort. But I've heard some conversations that you've had with others about clicking with people And I'm curious about how do you go about establishing relationships with your pitchers so that they trust you?
1: It's just asking questions and trying to get to know guys. You know, you figure out what they want to do and talk over them with game plans and stuff. And as you continue to do that over time, I think it's one of those things that just, like, you just build relationships. So.
0: So one of the things that I heard in an interview that you did with one of your teammates at Oregon State was you said that one of the things that you frequently ask yourself is, how can I make someone's day better? So how does that manifest itself in getting ready for a game and the game itself?
1: Just conversations, like talking to guys, ask them how they're doing, what's going on, you know, because you can just get caught up in your own own world with like the everyday grind of baseball. And so the more conversations you have in the clubhouse, the better.
0: What's an example of one that you might have had with someone that, that you don't, you don't have to necessarily say who, but what's an example of, of like what those conversations were like? It's nothing
1: groundbreaking. It's just very like day to day, ordinary stuff. Like, like I said, just like asking guys how they're doing, like what's going on in their life. And it's usually there's nothing crazy going on, but it's just continuing to try and build relationships and, you know, make sure your guys are doing good.
0: So I'm going to ask you about, I have four different pitchers that I wanted to ask you about on the staff in terms of what goes into catching them. So this is more of a talk shop kind of aspect of the conversation. What goes into catching Tyler Wells?
1: Game planning is just specifically for him. He's got more of a riding, forcing fastball, more of a vertical attack with that up and down, and you know he's got the slider, cutter, change up, so he's able to kind of work pitches off off each other pretty effectively, toss the curveball in there as well. So he's able to have, you know, multiple pitches moving in different directions, which is what makes him so effective. And he's able to locate off of those, and he has pretty good command.
0: So let's go to your relievers. What goes into catching canoe?
1: Heavy, heavy two seam. I mean, it's a, it's a really, really good pitch. I started to develop the slider a little bit more, and... He's got a really good feel for the changeup, so just kind of working that like east-west game a little bit more than the north-south. How do you prepare for for
0: the sinker with him?
1: It's just the more times you catch a guy, you just get comfortable, and you like your brain automatically after a while like understands how the pitch moves and, and tells your glove where to go, your hand where to go um, after a while, and so it becomes a lot more comfortable. But first couple times catching him is, is definitely tough because he's got super heavy sink.
0: So it's like a muscle memory kind of thing, then.
1: Yeah, you just it, you recognize like where the pitch starts, and it's just you don't really think about it. You just go catch it. What about Felix? I mean, same type of thing. More of a high, high arm slot, high extension, riding four seam that just gets on guys. So he he's got the slider splitter, and just really tough to hit any of any of the pitches he's got. But something about like the release and the fastball and the splitter coming out of. I don't know if it's out of the high arm slot or high height that it comes out of, but it's it's really tough to hit. And I faced him in spring and it's not easy.
0: So I saw one other guy out of your bullpen that doesn't necessarily get the press that those guys do. And I want to say he came in and struck out the side against the Giants in a game and just looked really impressive. So I'm curious if you could tell us about how you catch Danny Coulomb.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's got really, really nasty stuff. Someone that has uh, just been with us this year and So kind of been been able to like go through different stages with him pitching wise as the years gone on, you know, the fastball cuts, the cutter obviously cuts, and then the like the curveball slider combo just has so much movement. It's really impressive, but he's looked good all year and he's fun to catch.
0: Is there someone that I haven't said that is particularly into the game planning aspect of things in terms of how you guys talk through what you guys are going to do in a given game?
1: I mean all the all the starters are are in tune with it. They're probably the people that we work with the most just as far as like game planning because you see the most innings with them like for a given day, but all the guys are are into it and are bought in.
0: Is there someone on the pitching staff that isn't necessarily getting the credit that that they've merited this year?
1: I mean, to be honest, that we keep all of our stuff like pretty in-house that just as far as like media stuff and so I mean, I don't like obviously I know Felix has has gotten reliever of the month, I think, twice now. And, you know, Cano and all star I mean the rest of our staff is like I love all the guys and I mean I think everyone deserves all the credit, you know, everyone goes through their ups and downs, but everyone's just really supportive in our locker room. So it's it's not so much about like individuals, I guess.
0: So moving over to, to a different aspect of, of your catching game, kind of like the prep. We talk pregame prep typically with, with the guys that we interview. First of all, do you have any sort of warm-up routine? Absolutely. I go
1: through a mobility activation, you know, every day before I play and a little bit more right before before we go out to catch the starter. What do, like, what do you do? Every day is a little different, but I mean, some of the exercises stay the same. It's just... You know, you kind of start out by rolling out and then you get into some light stretching slash slash like activation stuff as far as light movements with like a little bit of weight or some bands or uh, sling or like the Kaiser.
0: All right. So every team seems to have a strategy coach these days. And I bring this up because yours is an alum of our company, Ryan, uh, Ryan Klimek. How does he help with you guys?
1: Oh, Clem's awesome, man. I mean, he helps out with all the all the pitch calling, game planning and really is like a a voice to like streamline stuff from the relievers to starters to catchers and make sure like everyone's kind of like like on a similar wavelength everyone has like their own individual thoughts usually about like game planning but he's kind of the you know voice of reason talking to like everyone and trying to get everyone more on the same page which i think is it's it's awesome and helps in game and you know when we're when we're doing like meetings
0: Without saying specific batter, specific pitcher, what's a pregame meeting like? Like, how is he guiding you, essentially?
1: I'd say just, like, like recent trends, patterns, anything glaring as far as, like, that goes. You know, for a lot of the teams, we played, you know, before. We've played against guys before. But a lot of those, like, recency things going on and, you know, maybe, like, it's a conversation, too. Like, maybe some guys see stuff that others don't, but he does a really good job. Do you have a favorite defensive play from
0: your first two years? Someone you threw out called strike three you got?
1: No, the only one that really stands in my mind is me and Gunnar went for a foul ball down the third baseline and he didn't, he didn't call me off. And so we ended up like colliding with each other and still made the play on it. So uh, that one's one that stands out to me. Who caught it? I did.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: And he's a bit. You know, he's a big guy though, so you got to be careful with it. Big him. guy. What
0: impresses you about him?
1: I mean... Man's athletic, strong. He's got a good mind for the game. Works hard. There's nothing that's not impressive about him.
0: How has your manager kind of guided you guys through this season? Because it seems like you've hit this peak point right now. What has Brandon done to to kind of guide this team along?
1: Seems like it's just a day to day thing. It's you know we don't look at where we're at. We just look at like where we want to be and what we want to do on on that given day, and just compartmentalize what what we got going on. He's a phenomenal leader and phenomenal manager. So we're we're blessed to have him and makes for a fun clubhouse as well.
0: I have one hitting question, just one. I know people are probably asking you a lot about the Home Run Derby. I want to ask you about walks. You're leading the American League in walks this year. What do you attribute that to and how have you developed as a hitter? I mean, I think
1: our hitting coaches just do a phenomenal job of, of stressing different aspects of hitting. And one of those is controlling the strike zone. And we work really hard at, trying to do that in batting practice, off the machine, wherever it is, just emphasizing hitting pitches in the zone and giving yourself the best opportunity to do damage.
0: Last question, and this is intended. Hopefully you'll get the spirit in which this is intended. Given that you hit homers from both sides of the plate in the home run derby, kind of almost like it was nothing, I'm wondering if next year you're planning to frame a strike with both hands? <laughs> I,
1: I th- yeah, we're, we're looking for the next, next big thing, so... I-
0: uh, I was no, going to say, how do you top that? Like, how do you top yeah, hitting a home run for both sides in the home run derby?
1: I don't know, man. I don't know. That was that was a cool moment. And, you know, obviously my, my dad was there, which made it as good as it could have possibly been. So very fortunate.
0: Cool. I have a feeling that if you guys make the playoffs, you'll be saying that the most memorable defensive memory will be catching the last out to get there. So, Adley, thank you for taking the time to join us. And best of luck the rest of the year. We'll certainly be keeping close tabs. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Jonathan Mayo is senior writer at MLB.com. You probably know him. He's been there since 1999 as their draft and prospect expert, and he's got a new book out, Smart, Wrong, and Lucky. It's about the origin story of eight prominent major leaguers, but told from the perspective of the scouts who watched him and the executives who drafted him. And the key to the book is that none of these guys were top-end picks. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, how's it going? Good. So you've got Votto, Bieber, DeGrom, Betts, Blackman, Kinsler, Kane, Pujols. Each chapter's 20 to 30 pages. It's the story of how they were scouted. What's the purpose of the book?
3: Oh, well, you know, as you as you stated, sort of introducing, I really, I wanted to let scouts tell stories because they do it better than just about anybody in the game. And, and without scouts, you know, there is no game. And as much as we like to tout the guys at the top of each draft, we all know that You know, every year there are big league stars and there are all-stars and Hall of Famers who are much later round picks. And I wanted to hear in more detail some of those stories. I'd heard bits and pieces and read bits and pieces of some of the stories I ended up telling in the book, you know, about how starting with the area scout and it's often the area scout with the later round picks, you know, what they saw in a guy and what opportunity, you know, they had to pound the table for them. But how did it come to pass? that they actually got the guy and what other teams were interested in. And and, and when I was able to, I also got the player's perspective for, you know, how all that went down.
0: So let's do an example. A Mookie Betts fifth round pick in the amazing 2011 draft. And there were a bunch of things that came into play, as you illustrated, both kind of old school and new school. Mookie's size may have been working against him a little bit. But one thing I found interesting was the scout's decision. Do I project him at second base or do I project him at shortstop? Can you explain that and why that was important?
3: Yeah, Danny Watkins, a longtime area scout for for the Red Sox and one of the best in the business, told me that he he really liked Mookie Betts and thought that maybe second base would be the you know, the best long term home for him if he was going to stay on the infield. But if you put in the report on a high school player, no matter how much you like him, that he's a, a, as a second baseman, the, the higher ups are. are going to you know, toss that report aside or or not give it the the kind of attention that Danny thought Mookie was due so even though he really was not sure that he could play shortstop the next level he filed the report on him as a shortstop just to make sure that you know the, the cross checkers you know a, a end up got the opportunity or thought or prioritized seeing him because an athletic high school shortstop who also played basketball and super athlete looks much better on paper than a future second baseman who's still in high school.
0: What does a scout have to do to get his GM's attention? Because I know that that there's, there's obviously the part of this that's the watching the player and evaluating part, but it almost feels like a scout has to kind of be a marketer too in the way that they look into players.
3: No, absolutely. I mean, a lot of it is just conviction and belief. And by the later rounds, it's really the scouting director in most cases who are making the call. So that's who they have to convince. And, you know, presumably the area scout already has a good relationship, you know, with the scouting director. So as long as he has the ear of the scout, it helps having a cross checker, you know, on your side. And that happened in, a, in you know, a number of cases where the area scout liked something about a guy. And the cross checker saw it and also liked him. And the cross checker is more likely to be in the room and area scouts not in the every draft room every year. So having, having allies, you know, safety and numbers certainly helps. And there were a number of people who saw Mookie bets and really liked him. And so it was a little bit of an easier sell for, for, to, to give to Amiel Sade, who was the scouting director for the Red Sox at the time.
0: One of the things that also fascinates me is that in the NBA or wherever, or the NFL, if you pass on a guy in the first round or the second round or whatever, he's probably not going to be available in the next round. But in baseball, you can be. And I think uh, if I'm if I'm remembering right, didn't the Red Sox kind of get away with that a little bit in this one?
3: Yeah, and 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 Sade told me as much. He's like, yeah, it worked out, and it's a great story. But he's looked back and even gone back and read over. The scouting reports again, and like boy, had I really been able to pay attention to the scouting report? And again, you know, twenty twenty hindsight always helps. It was like I should have taken him a lot sooner. And there were other teams that you know that were interested in drafting him. It just you know I don't want to say it was luck, but sometimes there is a little luck involved. You know they they probably should have taken him maybe in the third round, at least in the fourth round. You know it's hard to argue too much because that that draft for the Red Sox was so productive. But obviously, with the career that, that Mookie Betts has had, he he should have been at the at the top of everyone's boards. It's you know the case in, in most of these chapters. But yeah, there was a a certain sort of now looking back, breathing a sigh of relief. But boy, we could have been looked very foolish since there were plenty of people telling Sade that they needed to take him. This wasn't one of these cases, you know, like some of the other guys in the book who there wasn't a whole lot of other interest, or maybe there was only one other team, but they certainly dodged the bullet and getting him in the fifth round.
0: Back to this was something that was more modern, and that was a neuroscience test that the Red Sox did, where the guy that administered the test didn't even know like how to interpret it. I was wondering if you could just educate <laughs> us on that.
3: Yeah, they they were kind of on the, on the forefront uh, of using this kind of stuff, and it was just testing things like Hand-eye coordination, speed, and decision making, things of that nature. And you know, to this day, Danny Watkins admits he doesn't totally understand how the test works. It's not his job to interpret it either. But you know, as he said in the in the book, you know, there are been plenty of times where he thought someone was doing really well and they didn't score well, and vice versa. So it was just uh, uh, something that helped. Probably pushed the Red Sox over the edge with, with Mookie Best because as he said, he wasn't the biggest guy in the world, still isn't. And there were a lot of people who just didn't, they didn't love his swing. You know, they weren't sure how it was going to work. You know, there were, there were some questions about all that. The, the athleticism and the makeup were all off the charts. He, he'd do a lot of things very, very well, but between his size and the hit tool, there were enough question marks, but that neuroscience testing showed that he, You know, the Red Sox wouldn't sort of give away any of their sort of proprietary information, but uh, he clearly scored off the charts in terms of his, his ability to process information and make decisions quickly and turn that into athletic action in a millisecond.
0: Nice. So among the other seven chapters, is there an example of something that illustrates a point that either maybe comes up frequently year after year that results in guys getting overlooked? Or is there just a point that you would say one of those seven chapters really illustrates that you like a lot?
3: I mean, there are a bunch, and some of the stories are almost you know too good to be true. Like Lorenzo Kane had never played an in inning of baseball before a sophomore year of high school. Like that—that that was hard for me to fathom. Got drafted two years later as a draft and follow, which doesn't really exist. I, I think I don't know that there's like a thread, but one point that comes across two chapters that just jumped into my mind is the fact that I do feel that too much attention is spent paying attention to radar gun reading. You know, if a guy's not throwing at least low to mid-90s, even in high school, it's hard for them to get seen. And both Shane Bieber and Jacob deGrom were guys who did not throw hard in college. They both, you know, were kind of low 90s at best. I mean, Jacob deGrom really was 88 to 91 you know, when his journey year at Stetson, but both of them had a really good feel for pitching and had excellent command. And so I, I do think that there is something to be said and, you know, the Cleveland Guardians have continued, you know, since Shane Bieber and some other organizations have done it well, like the Seattle Mariners, in drafting guys who know how to pitch and then developing them and, and helping them learn how to throw harder. And now there's no guarantee a guy's going to throw harder everyone has a limit but i do feel like those stories point to a need to like maybe give those guys an extra look the grom story was a little bit you know different because he had almost no track record as a pitcher he had been a shortstop so it's not like the scouting industry like really missed on him but you know he faced off twice against chris sale and threw pretty well but no one paid any attention because everyone was focused on on sale who was a first rounder that year
0: we talk a lot about the idea of scouts on one side and stats on the other. When really they've they've kind of co-mixed at this point. But I'm curious in 2023, what should we know about scouts and who they are, and in terms of how they
3: do their work? I think the the organizations that do it the best do mix it, you know, and and find a hybrid. And I think you can't scout without at least having an understanding of data, of analytics, uh, and and what that information means. But I also think that it would, it, that it's a mistake to completely ignore the contributions that scouts make in terms of the human eye test, watching how a guy goes about his business, how he plays the game. And I do fear that that value is, is, you know, and, you know, the, the work of, of scouts, the area scouts and on up are, is undervalued and they're a bit of an endangered species. There are a lot of organizations that have cut down on their scouting staff, you know, during 2020, because of the pandemic, a lot of, there was a lot of video scouting done. And I think there's some feel that you could still do that. And while it's totally fine to use video as a tool, it's just like all the other things, you know, regular scouting, old school, we'll call it scouting evaluation, along with all the 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 data, you know, and advanced metrics and all those things, those should all be used as tools together in, in making the best decision you can and what is always and will always be an exact science. Who's doing it best. Wow. You know, I think it, it, it kind of goes year to year. It's hard to argue with what, what the Tampa Bay Rays have done. You know, they've kind of gotten back to finding a good mix of, they had a stretch a while ago where they got a little con- too conservative. And so they, they find a nice mix. Nice, I think Cleveland overall has done uh, a nice job. Although their draft this year was not one of my favorites. And the thing is it's hard to separate out in my brain the scouting and then the player development. Right? So yep. even if you don't love the Cleveland's draft this year, they clearly know how to develop pitching. And the Rays are great at finding talent in a whole bunch of ways. We always joke that if the Rays call talking about some guy in, you know, in the Florida Complex League in a trade, you should hang up the phone because that guy ends up being a really good major league player someday. They have a, a, a knack for finding talent that way, as well as, you know, internationally and uh, in the draft. Uh, uh, you know, the Baltimore rails, obviously, have built up a really good form system. They had, a, you know, long stretch where they're picking at, you know, or near the top of, of the first round and, and that helped, but they didn't miss on those. And then also, you know, use their bonus pools well to, to find some really good talent. You know, people forget that Adley Rushman was the clear cut number one pick, but they also got Gunnar Henderson in that same draft.
0: So, you mentioned the Rays and the Rays drafted, among others, Trey Morgan, who we talked to earlier this year. Is there someone else besides him who got drafted this year that you're particularly excited about from a defensive perspective?
3: Yeah, I think the first guy that came to mind was Enrique Bradfield, the, the speedy outfielder from, from Vanderbilt. You know, the Orioles took him in, in the first round. There, there are questions about his impact at the plate, but he's got a combination of nearly top of the scale speed. Which by itself, you know, can make you a decent center fielder because you can outrun mistakes you made. But the thing is, he doesn't make mistakes. He couples his, you know, plus plus speed with really good instincts and excellent reads and routes. So uh, that makes him automatically, when he enters pro ball, one of the better defensive center fielders, uh, you know, in the minor leagues, you know, once he gets going. So I'm excited to see what he can do. I'm hoping he can add just enough strength to kind of that the the people really like him and see some Kenny Lofton in him and that would excite me more than if he's Juan Pierre and nothing against Juan Pierre you know he had a very good career and used that speed but I'm hoping he impacts the ball enough so he can move quickly and, and become that everyday center fielder you know top of the order catalyst but defensively he could play center field in the big leagues tomorrow
0: wow we move to the minor leagues. Johan Rojas, he blew everyone away in minor league defensive run save this year, which is something that we provide normally just to teams, but we can share that. Is there an impact p- prospect besides him coming up whose D is either going to be really good or really problematic? I'll be really good. I like to be
3: positive. You know? Yeah, I'll go with Sedan Rafael of the Red Sox. You know, he he hasn't even been playing center field for that long. He started playing center in 2020 because he also played some uh, some infield. But he has got very, very good speed, and he's already showing very good instincts in the outfield. And he's been performing really well. I was just looking at guys who might like, who could get called up before the year is over, and he's at you know the the highest level. And he's the uh, you know I like guys up the middle who play defense like Johan Rojas does. He's a guy who came who came to mind. I think could play a very good center field in the big leagues if given the chance.
0: Nice. Jonathan Mayo, senior writer at MLB.com. The book, Smart, Wrong, and Lucky, the origin stories of eight prominent major leaguers told from the perspective of the scouts and executives who drafted them. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: We're joined by SIS VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales, reporting live from Pittsburgh, where he's just finished broadcasting a baseball game. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Mark's always a pleasure. All right. So let's talk about a few different things here. And let's start by talking about the trade deadline. Let's focus on a team first. And I know you wanted to talk about the Cleveland Guardians and the unusual series of moves that they made despite being uh, very much in the division hunt.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's just weird. They, they traded Savali away. And if you think about the way that the, the, the AL Central is eminently is wonderful right now, nobody really run away with it. You would think that Especially as you go down the stretch here, Stunning pitching is so important. You, you trade a guy from your rotation when you've already down a few pieces. Tristan McKenzie, I don't know if he'll be back this year. And if he is, he's probably going to be at limited innings. Bieber's down; he won't be back. He's, then you trade a starter. I know you went and got Noah Syndergaard, but he's not the Noah. He's not Thor. He's not the 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 Noah Syndergaard of years past. And you know, there's been, there's been issues throwing strikes. And you know, the Guardians, typically speaking, are our organization that. First of all, they're very smart. We respect them very much. I respect them very much and have for a long time. But if you think about the guys who pitched for them or played for them, they're very fundamentally sound. They throw the ball over the plate. They throw strikes. They you know, control the running game offensively. It's a very contact oriented approach. They don't strike out a bunch. They don't chase a punch. They don't hit a bunch of home runs, but they do, they do put the ball in play and they make, they force you to make plays against them. It just seems very counter to what they've been about or what they do now. You know, there's a reason they went out and acquired him. There's something they clearly saw. Maybe it's a there's a pitch type or there's an underlying metric that is really something they feel like they can hone in on and enhance and make him a better pitcher. And it's not to say that the Western Guard isn't serviceable. That's not it at all. It's just kind of very different, a different way for them to have gone about it. You would typically see from, from that group over there. But nonetheless, I'm sure they have done their homework. They have evaluated everything and they feel like that is going to be an excellent pickup for them. And also, you know, in sending a starter away, to me, that kind of signals, we've got enough to win this division. We felt there was an opportunity for us to get better. And if that were meant trading away one of our starting pitchers, then so be it. They they went ahead and did that. So I just, on surface, again, these are all moves that on surface, not being on the inside, they're like, you're like, hmm. And you just kind of sit back and you're thinking about some of the things they've done in years past. And it's like, wow, okay, well, they know what they're doing. They're, They're just a smart group. They know what they're doing. So. That was one they really grabbed me the other
0: day. Yep, they traded Josh Bell too. They're only two games out of first place at the time that we're talking, so they're very much in it, even though they did just get no hit by Houston. Let's focus on a player. Let's focus specifically on a pitcher, and that would be David Robertson going to the Marlins. The Marlins, at the time we're talking, a game out of the wild card hunt. I was asking you about, is there someone who... Goes to a, a situation that's you know considerably better for him. What might improve for them? Why do you like the Marlins getting David Robertson so much?
2: I, I think it's huge. Whenever you can get players who have been in the postseason and who have had that taste of it. Even, you know, clearly you want a guy who has done it and done it well and won. And Robertson has done that. But even, even you know, his most recent experience is like, I call it having the adult in a room. Okay, guys, I've been here before. I got the t-shirt. And I've th- I thrown that T-shirt away because you know the, the, he's 38 years old. He's been really, really good for the majority of his career. He's pitched in different roles in the back end of the bullpen. He's pitched behind one of the great, the best, maybe the best to ever have done it, and that means something when you get to that that time of year. Secondly, he's certainly going to influence you know guys in that clubhouse or guys in that bullpen who maybe have you know big upside but haven't been in that situation before. So I think that's just a good pickup when you can get guys. In that situation, who have done those things in, in, in tough situations. I definitely think that that's, that's an advantage. And he's going to enhance that bullpen. He makes, he, you know, he ticks, probably kicks AJ Puck up until the eighth inning roll or maybe a seventh inning roll, just a, a more leverage reliever. Now you've got the right, left mix back there, depending in, depending on what, you know, what Skip Schumacher and, and that pitching, that pitching leadership wants to do down there. They, maybe they mix and match them. I don't know how they use them. I just think that bullpen is better with David Robertson in it. I think that's a great pickup for Kimmy and the Marlins.
0: Value beyond the the stats with David Robertson. Under the radar value for Texas, which had an injury to its top catcher, Jonah Heim, they go out and get someone that I was touting on our Twitter as someone who would be a great under the radar get. And that was Austin Hedges, the catcher, arguably the best pitch, pitch
2: framer in baseball. And he has been for a long time. He's always had a way of presenting the, the the pitches to the umpire to get more strikes. Pitchers love throwing to him. He's got a rapport with all, most of the pitching staff, if not all the pitching staffs he's worked with and he universally respected in that regard. So I think that when, when you have a situation where Jonah Hyman was having a tremendous season for the Texas Rangers goes down, he can, he's not going to do what Jonah Hyman can do offensively. We know that, but there's not going to be any drop off of what happens in working with and receiving that Texas Rangers pitching staff. And that Rangers team, if they can get some pitching, you know they can hit. You don't. You're not going to win nine, eight, ten, eleven ball games in the postseason. It's a different animal back there. So if you get a guy who's got that kind of reputation and rapport with pitchers, it's only going to enhance your opportunity to win those games. They're going to be tight one nothing, three two, two one in the postseason.
0: Yep, you can get better pitchers certainly, but you can also get better catchers to improve a pitching staff. I want to switch gears. Talk briefly about the defensive player of the month. We gave it to three this month. We decided we were going to be very generous in our awarding. We got a Matt Chapman, Blue Jays third baseman. Brenton Doyle, Rockies rookie center fielder, who's been great. And the player you wanted to talk about, Bobby Witt Jr., the Royal shortstop, who last year ranked last among shortstops in defensive runs saved. This month, he was the best among shortstops in defensive runs saved, and he seems to be looking better. Throws through his first baseman's glove, notwithstanding. for those who saw that the other day. What, what do you think of, I, I know there was talk about, should he play third, should he play short? What do you think of Bobby Witt Jr. as a shortstop?
2: Well, I, oh, I saw him up and close and personal about two weeks ago. and He made every play he was asked to make, both to his forehand, to his backhand, and the whole charting, turning double plays and looked really good. He is a, if you haven't been up on him, he's a big dude, and he moves very well. He's got very light feet, very good feet. I know there was a lot of, you know, can he stay here? Can he stay here for an extended period of time? And, and. Some of that jury is probably still out and that's fair. This is one really exceptional month, but I, what I like is the progression, how much better he's gotten throughout this season. And let's, let's be honest that that Royals team is a little bit challenged or struggling this year. It's very difficult to be very, to be good on a bad team. He has continued to get better every single month, both offensively and defensively. And I know we're talking specifically about the defense here, but that's an encouraging sign. It's an encouraging sign for Royals fans, it's an encouraging sign for the game. This guy's a really good young player. He's a star. If you haven't seen him play, turn on the Royals, pick up, find the package, whatever package it is, whatever, however you get your your baseball, and watch this young man play baseball for four, five, six, seven, eight James, You'll be very impressed. And he's come a long way with his defense. And those it was a it was a thing throughout the industry. Can he stay there? He was gonna be a good player because he was gonna hit. He's gonna deal some bases and he's gonna run. But the question was what kind of defender was he gonna be? Not only is he gonna, is he gonna be a good defender, He's doing it at a premium position, and I think that's a great sign for the Royals, and it's a great sign for Bobby Wood Junior.
0: Seems like he's rushing a little bit less. All of his mistakes last year, I remember I watched them
2: at one point, and they were all seemed to be very rushed. Seems a little calmer as a second-year guy. Young players play fast at a young level, and what he's done is understand the speed of the game at the big league level. So it, it's a weird dichotomy. You get called to call the big leagues, and the big leagues is the fastest level you ever see. But you nine times out of ten, you got to get young players to slow down when they get there. And that's the big, that's the big conundrum that you're in. You have you have these the the rare cases like the Cabrian Hayes, who just have that really slow heartbeat. They play at a certain pace all the time. And he really didn't have to adjust to the speed of the game when he got to the big leagues because that's just the pace he played at. And you know, most young players play very fast. And you have to slow them, but now he had to bring them back. And that's what you're seeing with Bobby Wood Jr. He's learning professional pace. He's learning the pace of the big leagues. And he still has time where he wants to play fast, but you see him corrected very quickly. That's a huge adjustment for a young player.
0: All right, last topic. We go to the Sports Info Solutions website and look at our latest article that we will be posting on Thursday. As a matter of fact, our Defensive Excellence series, question and answer with Bianca Smith. And I bring this up for one reason. Bianca Smith headed to Japan, former Red Sox minor league coach, made her name known as the first African-American women pro baseball coach couple of years ago, did it for two years, now went looking for something new. She's headed to Japan to coach now. She said something in our conversation that I found fascinating. She was talking about how she could incorporate dance and other sports into coaching outfielders and infielders in baseball. And I know that you used to coach players at all levels and at all different positions. And I am curious what your take is when you hear someone talk about using lacrosse or soccer or volleyball or other
2: sports. Well, it's the, it's, there's two pieces of this. Number one, we'll, we'll take with the, uh, the, the other sports first. If you think about lacrosse, right? If you try to teach bunting, you're trying to get guys to bunt the ball softly off the either the end of the barrel of the bat or just make sure that they get the angle down. The best way to do that, you take a lacrosse stick and, and you can shoot ball into the, you know, into the hitting zone and you have them catch it. And that's just simulating actually the ball with the barrel. That's what you say a lot of times when you, when you are coaching players to, to, to bunt the baseball well you take a lacrosse stick and you do that i mean there's that that's that's a great way and i think first of all you're taking another implement from another sport and you're just making it fun people learn more in, in an environment when when it's fun and there's there's games and it's, there's competition right and so what she's doing is is taking different elements from different sports and 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 incorporating those into into teaching the game of baseball or teaching a specific skill. And you're making it fun. It's different, not the bat. It's something different. It could be, you know, I've seen it done with an outfield glove. I've seen it done, you know, with a lacrosse stick. I've seen it done with a special bat that has the net attached to it. So anything you can do to make the, to make the exercise more fun and incorporate learning, I think usually you're going to get a better outcome. Secondly, the second piece of that, I know she's talked about doing some things with the soccer ball and, and dance or whatever. Good players in all aspects of baseball, in really all sports. The best players have the best feet. You see, you see quality infielders. Their feet don't allow them to get bad ops. Like if you get to the big loser, you get to any level of baseball where, you know, you're a good player, you can catch the baseball. Cause if you couldn't, you wouldn't play anymore. The question then becomes, okay, where are the mistakes made? Most of the mistakes are made even in throwing because as a result of having poor feet, if your feet are misaligned or your feet are jumbled up or your feet are moving too fast or your feet are moving too slow. Then you'll have you know opportunities to miss the baseball, and if you do catch the baseball, you probably won't be in a position to throw. So if you're doing different drills with the soccer ball, and you're kicking the soccer ball around, or you're teaching you know perhaps communication by by kicking the soccer ball between two pe- the different you know groups of people, and you have to call for this, that, and the other. You're promoting communication. You're promoting good footwork. You're promoting being able to move in small spaces and you know, sometimes or lar- larger spaces. So there's so many ways to think creatively and think quote unquote outside of the box. To get the desired result, and it's good to see that Bianca. Bianca's very good. I've had multiple conversations with her, coaching conferences, and then at, at the winter meetings on several occasions as well. She's very smart. She's 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 different, and as we know, sometimes baseball doesn't like different. But she's different, and I'm I'm glad to see she's landed on her feet. She's got an opportunity to to one coach players in a different environment, but also two, she's going to go over there. She's going to learn a tremendous amount about herself and about the game, and, and she'll be able to take those experiences and make herself an even better coach as well.
0: Cool. Bobby Scales, VP of Baseball, Sports Info Solutions, and also Tigers broadcaster. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It's always a pleasure. And this wraps up the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at SIS underscore baseball and read our content at sportsinfosolutions.com. For Adley Rutschman, Jonathan Mayo, Bobby Scales, and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast.
1: If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.